This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Millions of acres have burned in the West this year, the worst wildfire season in recent memory. Relative to other Western states, Colorado's had a mild year, but work goes on here to find better ways to attack fires. Melissa Leinberger directs a research station. It's in Rifle, Colorado. It's actually part of state government, and its official title is the Center of Excellence for Advanced Technology Aerial Firefighting. And she's on the phone from Rifle to talk about fighting fires better. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. So when the Colorado legislature voted to create this center in 2014, it was charged with an important mission. That was figuring out how to safely fight wildfires in the dark. Uh, Firefighting planes and helicopters don't usually fly at night in Colorado. It's in part because of a series of crashes decades ago. Uh, I guess, first off, what are the benefits of nighttime firefighting? Why was the legislature so interested in this? Yeah, and and this was just one of many things that they wrote down as possible things for us to explore. And so um, night operations is one that we really took head on and, and we see as as sort of a long game for us because we want to make sure that we have all of the information and we're we're doing it intelligently before we make a recommendation to move forward with night operations. Uh, some of the benefits are that, you know, the humidity is higher at night, the fire lays down, the fire behavior is different. Um, and so there's some opportunity there to attack the fire and to be really successful. Um, also, if you're only fighting fire eight out of the 24 hours, um, you've got a lot of hours there that you could potentially be uh, be benefiting uh, the firefighting effort. Mm. And what are the risks? What do you have to sort of work past to make this possible? Yeah, a, f- a firefighting aircraft fly pretty low. Um, if you've ever seen a, a, a single engine air tanker drop retardant, they're flying much lower than you're expecting aircraft to fly. Mm. So the helicopters will fly uh, below 500 feet uh, above ground level. And sometimes they'll fly as low as 150 feet with a 100-foot long line on them. And so at night, it's harder to identify some of those uh, some of those aviation hazards, you know, power lines or trees, unless the pilot is really familiar with the area in which they're flying. Uh, they can't. The night vision goggles help, but you know, it can impact their uh, their peripheral vision and their ability to see some of the things that they would be able to see during the day. Um, and so flying low, uh, the folks who are doing it now in Southern California are using tank helicopters, so they don't have that long line with the Bambi bucket on the end. Hmm. Uh, and they're actually flying as low as 60 feet. And so if you don't know the area that you're in, uh, those hazards are, are there, and, and really any of them could be detrimental to the operation and, and to the life of the pilot. Did you call it a Bambi bucket? Yeah, uh, the bucket that hangs off of the long line, that big orange bucket that scoops water uh, out of a lake or a reservoir, those are are called Bambi buckets, and um, that's just the name of them. That's just the name of them, all right. Yeah. (laughs) So what are the workarounds? What avenues are you considering to get aircraft in the night sky? And part of me wonders if unmanned vehicles might be the answer here. Yeah, well, uh, you're spot on with that. So what we're doing right now is gathering information about the current use of night operations. Last January, we held a night operations summit here 
in rifle, and we partnered with Colorado Mountain College and brought in practitioners to speak about their programs, the risk. We also had vendors come in and talk about their capabilities. And so we learned a lot from that. Uh, We've been out to Southern California and seen some of the night operations programs. We really want to determine cost, risk, uh, perception in the community, use, um, effectiveness. You know, is it really that much more impactful? Yeah. And then we need to figure out what data is missing and what data we need as far as Colorado wildland fires and what the benefit would be of adding uh, night capabilities. So lots of questions to answer. And what role might unmanned vehicles play? Sure. So the options that we've considered are, you know, keep the status quo, don't do it. Um, We've looked at all hazards, night up, all hazards capable uh, night operations helicopters so we could use them year round. Um, and then Lockheed Martin and Cayman have come together on a project called the K-Max helicopter. And it's a type one helicopter, which means it's the biggest type that we use in wildland fire. Uh, we're currently using those in a, in a piloted capacity, but they're developing a package that would make each of those manned aircraft optionally piloted. Hmm. And so we could fly them in the configuration during the day with other aircraft with a pilot on board and then switch them into optionally piloted mode at night. Um, those are expensive helicopters, so we still wouldn't want to crash them, but you do take okay. the, the human element risk out. And so we're definitely exploring that as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, I'm not sure if you knew this, but the state of Colorado uh, some years back created a center of excellence for advanced Technology Aerial Firefighting. This research station is in Rifle, Colorado, and its mission in many ways is to fight fires better. And I'm fascinated to learn that your center also studies the use of enhanced water on fires. What is enhanced water? It sounds like something I drink after the gym. (laughs) So it's a little different than what you drink after the gym, but uh, uh, they're They're called water enhancers. You'll commonly hear them referred to as gels. And so, you know, just for some background information, when you when you see the aircraft in the sky, uh, you see the red stuff coming out. Right. You you see the slurry and uh, the mud. You know, you hear it called all kinds of different things, but that's retardant. And its chemical makeup is designed to be dropped in front of the fire, in front of the head of the fire, so that it slows down, it retards the fire's growth. Um, What these water enhancers or gels do is you actually drop them directly on the fire, and they're called water enhancers because they actually enhance the property of water, and so they keep the water wet longer. Wow. um, And they're able to put the... First of all, they're thicker, so it's easier to drop them on target. And second of all, they make the wetness of the water last longer so that the fire can, you know, potentially drop it right on the fire and the fire gets put out or it gets cooled down enough so that you can get ground resources out there and it's safe for them to be around that fire. Now, could you put the enhanced water, yeah, I don't know, in some sort of packet and drop the packet and, I don't know, somehow slightly delay how the water is released? Sure. And actually, there's a company in Israel that's working on that, um, that's reached out to us several times. And, you know, we're working on on learning more about their technology, but it does, it packages whatever product you want into these small baggies. Uh, and it, you know, the, the benefit of it is increased uh, uh, target, uh, 
you know, you meet you meet that target better because uh, you're not having a lot evaporate in the air. Um, you have more control over where those actually hit the ground. Now, you hinted at this a little earlier, Melissa, that you don't want to run full steam ahead with a technology until it's researched. I, I imagine that there are a lot of uh, gizmos and widgets that you're pitched all the time from companies who'd love to sell you something. Uh, what do you say, perhaps to the wildland firefighter listening to this, who thinks, you know, the the real tried and true way to fight a fire is on the ground, it's fire lines, it's shovels, and all of this is uh, is a gimmick. What, what, would, you, what would you say? <laughs> Sure. And and we actually all agree with half of that statement. Uh, Almost all of the work that's done to put those big wildland fires out is done by the folks on the ground. The aircraft exists to support those folks and make it easier for them to get to the area and to do the things they need to do on the ground. And so although we are the center of excellence for advanced technology aerial firefighting, some of our technologies focus on communication between air to ground resources and the ability for the folks on the ground to really benefit from these technologies. Um, While we were standing up this center, what I heard was that academics are doing great research, but it's never getting into the hands of the firefighting community. And so our real driving goal is to focus on accessible, useful technology for firefighters. Um, And then a word that we throw around a lot is democratization. So putting it in the hands of of everyone from the high-level incident commander to your line-level firefighter. So making sure that this technology is never too academic, expensive, or obscure to be useful to the folks that we are here to help. Ah, expensive seems key in a state with a strapped budget, with limitations on its budget. Uh, but some of the technology you've talked about, unmanned helicopters, uh, as you've acknowledged, is quite expensive. So to what extent is, is money an obstacle in executing whatever you come up with? Uh I have a limited budget here, and um, I always joke that I spend most of my money on brains. Um, I was able to hire seven really smart people, and they're our greatest resource. And so um, they focus a lot on on what we can do with the limited financial resources we have, and then we try to find strategic partnerships, uh, either with vendors or higher education, co-applying for grants, um, or finding ways that we can mutually benefit. And a great example of that is is we're studying drones in public safety because the legislature mandated that in a bill that was passed this past legislative session, House Bill 171070. And they authorized us to accept gifts, grants, and donations. And so we went to work on putting something, putting a donation form on our website so that folks who want to can contribute to that. We estimate that a robust pilot project is going to cost about a million dollars. The idea behind the unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, if you will, is not just that they benefit firefighting, but they could benefit all sorts of law enforcement in search and rescue, what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and our mother agency is the Department of Public Safety. And so if any of these technologies can be extended to help them, uh, then we try to find ways to reach out and, and teach them about that technology, too. Very briefly before we go, do you think that fires will be fought in Colorado at nighttime, I don't know, in, in 2018? Is it that soon or a longer time horizon? You know, I think that 2018 is probably ambitious, uh, but the way that the industry is moving and the support at the decision-making level for 
testing this technology and trying to integrate it is growing so rapidly that I would say within five years, we will see limited operational testing at the very least and, and potentially a night fire program here in Colorado. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Melissa Leinberger directs the Center of Excellence for Advanced Technology Aerial Firefighting, and she joined us from Rifle, where it's headquartered. Landing on an asteroid is hard, but a Colorado scientist may have a solution, a soft robot. It's one of the far-out projects that won a grant from NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, which invests in potentially kooky ideas, or potentially not, to see if they can work. We are highlighting a few of the Colorado winners this week as NASA hosts its NIAC Symposium in Denver. The Frisbee Bots were proposed by Jay McMahon. He's an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So we learned yesterday that NASA is interested in mining asteroids for water, which could be used to make rocket fuel in space through a process you can learn more about at cprnews.org. But you're thinking about landing on an asteroid. That is not easy, as history shows us. In 2014, the Rosetta mission sent a probe to land on a comet, it bounced around before getting stuck in a crack. What makes this so hard? Uh, the main challenge there is uh, the microgravity environment. So these are small bodies, uh, very small compared to things like moons or planets that we're used to thinking about in space. And so there's just very little gravity. And so you don't stick to the surface like we're used to sticking on the Earth. What are the size of the objects you want to land on? So the typical near-Earth asteroids are on the order of a kilometer in diameter. So quite small, right? I mean, you could run around, if you could run on the surface, you could run around one in, you know, 10 minutes or something. Okay. Well, how would your soft robot stick the landing? So uh, there's a couple interesting things that these soft robots uh, can hopefully provide. Uh, the big one is that they have a large surface area. So you described them as Frisbee bots earlier. Uh, so you can think of them larger than Frisbees, though, right? So a few square meters uh, in area, right? Um one of my friends described them as a kiddie pool. Uh, okay. So they're sort of <laughs> disc-shaped and large. Yeah. And so this large surface area, you can actually uh, get cohesive forces between the robot and the surface material. Sticky yeah. forces. Yeah. So think glue, but there's not actually glue there, right? But there's something... There's uh, intermolecular forces that we don't normally notice on Earth because they're so much weaker than gravity, but since on asteroids the gravity is so much weaker, these cohesive forces can actually have a significant effect. Oh wow! And to describe it as a soft robot makes it think makes me think that it would be like really nice to hug. Is that I mean is that the kind of softness we're talking about? Um, probably not quite that soft. Okay. I mean, well, they'll be made of some sort of polymer, so just a rubber type material, probably. So not necessarily huggable. Um, but yeah, the the soft description comes from the fact that they're flexible, right? Instead of the robots of yore that you're used to thinking of that are aluminum. Rigid and or, breakable. Right, and metal, right, and cold. These are, uh, they're flexible structures. And so 
they have actuators embedded into the flexible structure. And so it's uh, softer than metal and it can bend and flex kind of like a biological material. And does that mean that it could move around once it alights on an asteroid? Yeah, exactly. So once we land on the asteroid and hopefully uh, can stick to the surface and not bounce away like Philae did with Rosetta, uh, yeah, hopefully we can crawl around on the surface or possibly hop from place to place. Hop even. And what would be the power source for something like that? Uh, probably for something like this, we're thinking of a radioisotope generator. So this is like what was on the Cassini spacecraft that you might have heard about uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, so this is a, um, you know, it's a radioactive generator. And as the, the radioactive element decays, it creates heat and we can turn that into power. Uh, tell me what opens up to humanity if we're able to safely land on an asteroid. What, what possibilities does this open? So uh, just a side note, we have safely landed on asteroids before. There was a mission called NEAR, uh, Near-Earth Asteroid Rendezvous Mission, uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s that landed on Near-Earth Asteroids. So we have done it before. That was a much bigger asteroid than I'm talking about. Mm. Um, but once we can routinely land on asteroids... Right, routinely to, and safely do it. Right, mm-hmm. and, and we can start to actually gather resources from asteroids. And and like you mentioned, uh, water is kind of our main goal. And if we can mine water in space and turn that into fuel or use it as water or oxygen for life support, uh, this really opens up uh, the ability for more people and more uh, commercial operations to work in space. Would you imagine that this softbot itself did the the mining or the extraction? So... uh, that's something that we're looking into. There's a couple different concepts. So you could have the softbot on the surface actually trying to process the material there. There's uh, another kind of more complicated way of doing it, or it sounds more complicated, but it might actually be easier because of the environment. And that's to have the softbot picking up material and just throwing it off the surface, basically. Okay. And then having another kind of refinery spacecraft in orbit around the asteroid that could Catch capture it. that. Yeah, and process it in orbit then. But what a choreography that would have to be. Uh yeah, but I don't think it's uh I don't think it's anything more complicated than what we're used to doing in space. We do complicated things all the time. And one of the side effects of having such a, a low gravity in this environment is that the orbital speeds are very slow. So you're in orbit at moving at centimeters per second. So you can walk much faster than that. I see. It's not as if uh, you'd be whipping by and trying to capture this debris. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jay McMahon. He's an assistant professor at CU Boulder, and his proposal for a soft robot to land on asteroids was chosen by NASA for a NIAC grant. This is a program designed to turn what sounds like science fiction into reality. And you received uh, a $125,000 grant that'll be uh, allocated over about nine months. It's a phase one grant. So I suppose that means Mm -hmm. you're in your earliest stages. Will you build a prototype? So that's something that we would hope to try and do in phase two. So given the... I'm getting ahead of of myself here. Well, you know, I'd I'd like to to hope that we're going to get a phase two. Right. That's obviously the goal. But in phase one, we tend to just do paper and simulation studies, uh, both because of time constraints and money. We get, uh, you know, grad students are doing most of this work right? that I advise at CU. So I get them on there and they try and uh, 
prove the feasibility in phase one. Would you envision a fleet of these Frisbee-like softbots flying around in space? It's rather saucer-like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would envision using more than one. Uh, I think the idea is this, having this kind of mothership go to an asteroid, have a number of these softbots uh, carried with it that it could then deploy down to the surface and they could gather material uh, to be refined then. That's your vision. Well, so uh, NASA is hosting this symposium in Denver for grant winners. It's actually free, open to the public, uh, designed to create a kind of think tank atmosphere. You spoke yesterday. What's the atmosphere like at this NIAC symposium? Yeah, it's great. So since I just got my phase one award, this is the first time I've been to the NIAC symposium. Um, But it's a really nice environment. Lots of uh, deep thinkers there and throwing out ideas bouncing ideas off the wall and stuff. So uh, it, it so far has been a great experience and it continues today and tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. And Jay McMahon, assistant professor at CU Boulder, and we talked about his proposal for a soft robot to land on asteroids. As we said, this NIAC symposium in Denver is free, open to the public, runs through tomorrow, and there's more information about it at cprnews.org. When he came to Colorado from Senegal 20 years ago, Papa Ja thought he'd land a job and send money home. That would be his big contribution. And he did do that with a job stocking books at the Tattered Cover. It's where he also picked up a lot of English. But Ja didn't stop there. He became a mentor to other African immigrants, helping them adjust to life here. He says over the years, his organization has reached at least 20,000 people. And this month, the state gave him a courageous Citizen Award. And Papa Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. So you started the African Leadership Group based in Aurora more than a decade ago. But I understand it wasn't your intention to do something like this when you first got to the United States. How did you come to see that other African immigrants like yourself needed help, needed support? When I came here in 1998, as you mentioned earlier, the, 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 the goal and the vision was just to have a job and send money home. And I was very happy to do that. You have a big family back big home. Big family back home. My mom had 13 kids on her own. And when I started working at Tattered Cover Bookstore and later had the opportunity to start a banking career as a teller, fellow Africans will come and see me there. And they will be very shocked to see an African working in the bank. And I think that was not the common uh, things to see that back then. They didn't think that was necessarily a possibility for themselves to for land themselves. a job like that. No, not at all. And next thing that you know, that they will come to me to see me asking for help to translate document into English, to help them build their credit, open an account. And I started getting in trouble at the bank because I find myself doing more social work at the <laughs> bank than doing what I was supposed to do. And that's when the idea occurred to really start an organization to help the African to integrate professionally in, in Colorado. I'm interested particularly in the banking angle. Why was banking such a mystery to the people who showed up? Why did they have so many questions about banking? Well, because it's not common coming from Africa. Uh, the, the theme is, how do I get a job and find a job quick? And usually when you start a banking career, there's some education that needs to take place. There's a lot of understanding that needs to take place. So they don't think it was within reach for them. But in the African community, we learn by seeing. When we see a fellow African doing certain things, now we start believing in ourselves that we can do the same exact thing. Huh. 
I, I hear so often from immigrants uh, that have been on the program that they had, you know, careers and and very full lives in the country from which they came. And then they immigrate to the United States and they often have to take a menial job, something that may not even fit with their high level of education. Do you, do you find that as well? Ryan, it's, extra, it's very common in our, in, in our community right now. We have PhD holders. We have people that were doctors back home, dentists, lawyers. But when they come to the United States, most of the time, their credit cannot be transferred. Their certification cannot be transferred. And with the language barrier, they find themselves having to start all over. Going to school can be a challenge because they don't have the money. They don't have the scholarship. So quite often they give up on the dream and the talent that they had coming over here and having to do different job because they have a family to support. So you've been running this organization, uh, as you say, sort of first on the side in addition to a banking career. But then uh, when you took it on full time, it's really been just you with your own money. I understand that you recently got some help from the Walton Family Foundation and the Rose Community Foundation. And where will that money be best directed? Like, where can you make the biggest difference? We, The African Leadership Group, we focus on three layers, social impact, economic impact, and educational impact. So those funding that we get is geared toward the educational impact. Because if we've got to build a strong community, we have to start educating members of the community. So is that getting folks into school? What What, do you, what is education? It's, it's a combination of a lot of things. It starts with family, making sure that they understand the resources that are available to them, making sure that information are being sent at home in the language that they understand. Because quite often, these parents, English is a third or fourth language. You might be uh, dealing with French speakers. French speakers, Amharic speakers from Ethiopia, people from Somalia, Arabic speakers, because we have a lot of different dialects in Africa. But our main goal within the African leadership group, especially around this educational impact, to make sure families are equipped. Because when we talk about education, we have the private school, we have the public school, we have the charter school. How do we make sure family understand the difference between those three different schools? Mm. And to have the opportunity to choose the best school that fits the best education that their kids need. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Papa Ja, who was just awarded by the state a Courageous Citizen Award. He started the African Leadership Group, which is based in Aurora more than a decade ago. And he is helping other African immigrants like himself adjust to life in Colorado and hopefully thrive here. And I am always loath to talk about Africa, right? Because that that, that encompasses so many different countries and so many different cultures. That's true. What would you say are the, the group's coming to Colorado right now in the highest numbers and perhaps with the greatest needs? You know, uh, one of the largest groups, because Colorado has become one of the refugee camps, we see a lot of South Sudanese coming here. We have a lot of people from the DRC coming here. Democratic uh, people, Republic yes, of Congo. Yes, Democratic Republic of Congo. And the Ethiopian community is the largest African uh, immigrant community in Colorado. And quite often... Most of these people, they left Africa to seek for economic impact, to seek for job and opportunity. So I think one of the biggest needs is how do they have an opportunity to land a job, help the family that they left behind, and also support themselves here in Colorado. But aren't there a lot of supports for refugees already 
Uh, and, and so does your purview extend beyond refugees into other types of immigrants? We definitely go beyond refugees. Uh-huh. Because quite often, as a refugee, when they come here, they get help with housing. They get help with uh, Medicaid. And, but as we take it to the next level where we facilitate their professional integration, they might come here just seeking, like, I'm here as an asylum or I'm here as a refugee. But with the African Leadership Group, we let them know, if your dream is to become a doctor, we can help you do that. If your dream Have is, you been able to uh, help someone become a doctor? We've been able to help a lot of people. As a banker, I brought in quite a few people in the banking industry where they become managers, where okay. they become business banker. We have helped people go to school, but we haven't had somebody that made it over the hump to become a doctor. Okay. We have a lot of engineer. We have a lot of CPA. We have a lot of self-employed people. Through the African Leadership Group, we were able to guide them. Tell me about someone you've helped, someone whose story sticks out in your mind. Well, the one that stick out in my mind is uh, a young lady, uh, 16 years old, came from Ethiopia that needed a kidney transplant. And she was 16 years old back then. She was able to have the medical visa to come to, the, to, to Colorado. But when we came, when she got here, she realized that they needed about $250,000 to do the kidney transplant. The family came and see me. And obviously, I did not have the money back then. But believing in what I believe and knowing that we don't take no for an answer. So I pursued reaching out to the bank that I was working for back then. And we designed a program called Compass for Your Cause. And what, what we did is every single member of the community, if they open a bank account with that bank, the bank will donate $150 to the cause. And any time they use their debit card, a percentage of the transaction will go to the cause. And did she get the surgery? Yes. Actually, every Sunday we were going to different churches to set up people to open an account. We end up raising enough money, working with hospital, find a donor from California, did the kidney transplant, save a life. She went and pursued her education, and later she was able to get her green card, and she's here living a normal life. In oh, the I see. States. So she remained. She remained and stayed and pursued her dream in, in Colorado. That's the one that stick out a lot. Uh, tell me what you're hearing um, in the African immigrant community uh, in general. I'm not asking you to, to to give voice to everyone in that community by any means. But what are what are the impressions you get uh, in terms of how the current administration, the the new president, is talking about immigration, is talking about immigrants? Uh, what are you hearing? Right. Obviously, there's a lot of fear. Uh, we are dealing with a lot of uh, members of the community that are facing deportation. We have family who are here illegally. We are here. They overstay their visa. Mm. Because what I would like for people to understand, uh, when we say illegal immigrant, most of these African immigrants, they enter this country legally, but they might have overstay. Well, that's their, not their, legal their, to their, their, their visa. It's not legal. And we are not encouraging anything that's illegal at all. But we have family that are being separated. We have people that's been here for 17 years, 20 years, that are facing deportation. And they have children that the only place they know is the United States of America. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of concern. People don't know what are the resources available to these children if the parent being deported. So the, the DACA issue... Childhood arrivals touches the African community in Colorado. It does. Mm-hmm. It does touch the African community big time. And right now, we don't even know if DACA is removed. What are those resources? What are those programs that are available to still keep these kids in school while they can pursue their education? Do you still send money home? Oh, it's an obligation. We all do. I still do myself. 
How much family do you have in Senegal these days? Oh, I have about 25 in my household, and uh, not to mention the extended uh, family members. And this is common to most African immigrants. And How? that's something we take a lot of pride of. It's because part of our culture is to share and care for each other. How does your life here compare to what it would be in Senegal, do you think? I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to live in a country like the United States where I can pursue my dream, where I know that there's a lot of things that I could do. I am very well aware of the fact that the thing that I can do here, it will be way more difficult to do than back home. But in the same time, I look forward to really be a good citizen to this country, to contribute to the state that we live. This is what we call home and be part of the community as well but at the same time help members here and also help people back home. Thanks for being with us. It was a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Papa Ja is the founder of the African Leadership Group based in Aurora. This month, the state honored him with the Courageous Citizen Award for his work with the African immigrant community. Other honorees include civil rights activist Judy Shepard, the mother of Matthew Shepard, who was killed for being gay, and Dr. Joseph Johnson, for providing medical care to immigrant communities in Aurora. Now, a band that lives up to its name. Big Gigantic is from Boulder, and their sound is enormous. Okay, all that sound comes from just two musicians, producer and saxophonist Dominic Lawley and drummer Jeremy Salkin. They've played the country's biggest music festivals, including Coachella, Bonnaroo, and Lollapalooza. Big Gigantic also runs its own music festival right here in Colorado. It's called Rowdy Town, and it returns to Red Rocks this weekend for a sixth year. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Nice to have you both. So some electronic artists might just hit a few buttons on a computer when they're playing live shows, but your concerts really stand out because you play live saxophone and drums over your electronica beats. Uh, Dominic, can you tell us how your, your signature sound came together? Uh, I would say, um, you know, me and uh, Jeremy used to live together uh, in Boulder, and um Kind of when, I would say back in like 2008, 2009, um, kind of when sort of like uh, the jam scene and the electronic music scene were sort of uh, merging a little bit and the electronic scene was kind of coming up, uh, me, and, me and Jeremy used to kind of, uh, you know, go sit in with our DJ friends who, who would play or our, our live band friends who are doing more electronic things. And that kind of piqued our interest um, in getting into music production and trying to kind of figure out a way to sort of merge our live instruments and jamming, that kind of a thing, with, uh, you know, the beats that, that I was making at home um, and stuff like that. And, and we kind of turned that into Big Gigantic. And I suppose you have to be really mindful of the electronic music not overpowering the live music. Like, it must be a really sensitive balance you strike. Definitely, definitely a delicate balance, I would say. And, you know, it's something that we've been working on sort of perfecting in a way uh, over the years. And, um, 
And yeah, I think um, you know lately what we've been doing is mixing a lot of horns and uh, and and uh, you know the live drums and the program drums and sort of mixing all those things together, and that seemed to kind of make us where we're at today uh, with our sound and kind of where it's developed and, and where, where we've where we've come to now. Now, drum machines are really common in your genre of music. Uh, Jeremy, as we said, you play the drum parts live on stage. What, what kind of reaction mm-hmm. do you get from audiences who might not be used to hearing that at an electronica show? Um, I, they seem very excited. Um, it's, I think having that live element kind of keeps things really organic. And it, on top of having somebody like you're watching them perform and, and do all that, it just kind of it fills the, the spaces where the programmed music you know, is going to be the same every time. There's not, you don't have the ability to, to improvise when, you know, you have this, this program drum beats. Whereas Uh. when we're playing live, we have the ability to kind of feel things out and keep it, keep it flowing and keep it kind of really, really dynamic and all that. And I think it kind of brings another dimension to like an electronic show, which is usually pretty, um, Program kind of straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, it's programmed. Yeah, exactly. So it's really, really fun. And, and Dom and I come from a background where we play a lot of jazz and funk and all these things where you kind of express yourself and have solo sections and have whatever. So it's really cool to be able to do that in an electronic, sh- in a dance show where it's normally like the same thing kind of throughout the show. Yeah. And so Dominic, do your own shows sometimes surprise you? Yeah, I mean, we definitely try to, uh, you know, set up sections where, you know, we can, um, you know, we can just really just take it back to kind of that day one thing where we just improvise and really just play off each other. And yeah, and, and you know, a lot of times we'll just hook up on some rhythmic, you know, some cool rhythmic thing um, that really sort of propels us into the next section. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's super fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. Let's hear a song from your latest Brighter Future. This is a track called All of Me. Yeah, take it all, ain't no way I could break it off Girl, is you really down to pay the cost? Reverse the role that you can play the boss Already know I'm a, already know I'm My vision is faded, I try to evade it but can't I know you far from a saint, but I keep lying to me Cause I've been dying to me And it feel like I follow you out in the street And I promise you all that I know Everywhere that my mind goes Elevated, heart strong but my head faded Way back when we first dated, I'm gone now Cause I'm on now When my intuition got me in the mission We see how to eye But you ain't in my vision Oh no I said oh no Back in the day I used to say A girl like you I used to pray for days My guests are Big Gigantic And one of the guests on that song is Logic Who's one of the biggest rappers of the year And there are plenty of other guest artists on this album Jeremy, how does a musical collaboration Typically begin for you two? Um, it kind of starts in different ways each time. Um, sometimes it's artists that we've just kind of met along the road. That's, that's how it was with Logic. Him and Dom just kind of randomly met at at different festivals and, and stayed in touch. And then I believe Dom, you like made a beat and I think just like sent it to him and then, and he loved it. And then he got met in the studio and stuff. 
Yep, exactly. Yeah, I, I actually met uh, I met Logic here in uh, Denver at the Ogden during one of his shows, and that exact beat I, I had, you know, I had like all my beats on my phone, and you know, ended up, you know, going to meet him, and I just, you know, played him a few things, and um, and you know, that beat in particular, uh, he was like, you know, let me, let me get on that one, and uh, and then after the whole song kind of came together, and I ended up getting roses. Um, on that and singing everything, um, yeah, I went to LA and, and he came down and, and uh, you know, recorded, you know, wrote and recorded everything right there in the studio. And, um, you know, super stellar guy, uh, great vibe, um, you know, just great outlook towards life and music. And, and um, just super happy to be able to get him um, on a collaboration. Do you guys dance on stage, Jeremy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You do. You I know, do I just think that, I, I think that people are so self-conscious when they dance, and I'm wondering if you are, or if you've sort of gotten over that, or or what. Jeremy, answer that, and then maybe Dominic. Uh, well, I'm playing drums, so it's kind of hard to dance. I guess. <laughs> like I don't know, bouncing back there or jumping up and down sometimes. But um, yeah, Dom, what do, what are your dance moves? <laughs> I, I am show? definitely. <laughs> I try to u- utilize all my dance moves during the set. I, I definitely try to have uh, just as much fun as possible up there. So I'm mm-hmm. just I'm just making that a point, you know, and and just dancing and having fun and uh, just enjoying myself and playing music. How much thought goes into the visuals of a concert versus the music? Um, do you you know I've been to con- I was I think I was at a Bjork concert and uh, there was a visual representation of all the electronic music that was playing and it it had a theatrical feel to it. Um, is there much stage dressing? Do you think of, about that a lot, or do your do your people think of, about that a lot, Dominic? Yeah, we we do. We uh you know we have a lighting uh, video director who we work with real closely um, on really you know um, for songs you know having you know a really just a visual going. Uh, we think not nowadays you know especially you know in this day and age it's really important to have uh, the visual along with the audio. So we we spend as much time as we can really trying to coordinate all that stuff and um, and have. Uh, you know, just as stimulating uh, visuals as as we do audio, you know, just to bring the whole, tie the whole experience together. Jimmy, do you think a lot of people who come to your concerts are high? <laughs> um, it, there's probably something going on. I'm not sure what. Um, I guess they could be high on a few different things or high on life or just excited to like... <laughs> get out of the house and get away from, from work or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully the visuals help enhance the show in whatever capacity the person is. Uh, in whatever space they're in. Day. Let's hear some. Whatever space they're in. Yeah. I mean, in Colorado, <laughs> there's a good chance. Like, let's be honest. There's with the current state of, uh, of marijuana legalization. I'm sure there's a good chance people are getting down. But I think hopefully our music is enjoyable, both any way you you, uh, experience it. And let's hear more of the music from Big Gigantic. This is The Little Things featuring vocals from Scottish singer Angela McCluskey.
it's really fun to hear Andrew McCluskey in that uh, in that instrumentation because I know her as a folk singer from a band called Wild Colonials a hundred years ago. And this is, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is such a good track. I want to say that last year you formed a charity called a Big Gigantic Difference Foundation, and since then you've donated proceeds from ticket sales to nonprofits, including Youth on Record, which provides music education to students, I think largely in Denver. Uh, you just donated an entire computer lab for young musicians. Uh, Jeremy, why was that a good fit, do you think? Um we were trying to find a local charity kind of around Colorado that, um, that we could help out. And we wanted to, to kind of gear things towards music. Um, cause we had, when we formed the charity last year for our, our tours last year, we, every, like we did like a dollar a ticket and every dollar kind of went to a local community in the town where we had just done the show. Oh, neat. Which was really cool to be able to like do things in these communities. But what we found is that it'd be, you know, it was great being able to donate as we were bouncing around, but to kind of get a bunch of funds together from like a whole year of touring and to be able to do one big project would also, um, could also have a cool impact. So, when we were looking around Colorado, we um, found the Youth on Record guys, and and they're doing something great with um, with students in schools that don't have music programs because a lot of those are kind of getting stripped away, um, which is awful. I can't even imagine go like going to middle school or high school without a music program. I don't know. That was such a big part of my life that I don't know where I'd be without that. So it's, it's youth on record is kind of bringing that back. And if, you know, for kids that don't have music programs in their schools, they can go there and they have a studio, they have instruments, they're teaching kids music production, which is where we wanted to kind of come in since we, that's one of the things, you know, that Dom obviously does and that we do. So Yeah, part, part of me thinks it would be funny if you were grooming your future next member for Big Gigantic. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We're grooming, you know, the next generation of, uh, you know, Colorado, you know, musicians and, you know, encouraging encouraging them to take the next step. You know, here's the computer, here's mm-hmm. the programs, like, be the next, be the next one, you know, be the next us, be the next, you know, producer who we can put up or put on you know to the rest of the world maybe they'll start a band called small tiny yeah little tiny little tiny okay uh very briefly we have about maybe 30 seconds i i don't understand how you have time for all this you have the band you've got the foundation and then there's this festival rowdy town that starts uh at red rocks friday goes to saturday just really quickly dominic do you how do you find the time uh, yeah, we just, you know, we, we love what we do and we do what we love. So, you know, it's just, we just do it when, and we love it and, and, uh, we just make the time for it. And, uh, you know, we get ex- super excited about it every year and we have an awesome team who helps us kind of put the whole thing together. And, uh, we're excited for our sixth year. It's, it's uh, pretty wild. It's our sixth year doing, doing this. Big Gigantic performs at Red Rocks Friday and Saturday as part of its own annual Rowdy Town Festival. And the deluxe version of the duo's latest album, Brighter Future, is out now. This is the tune, Got the Love. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. CPR News.